In Cornwall in 1997, Cornwall on the coast of England, there was a washing ashore of tens of thousands of Lego bricks. You see, what had happened is a container ship out at sea had been in rough waves and was encapsulated by a wave at one point and washed 63 um, crates or, or cargo crates off the side of the ship. One of those crates contained 4.8 million Lego pieces. 4.8 million, completely harnessed up, locked up with all the metal locks and, and everything, fell into the sea and went to the bottom. And because of the way the currents moved, somehow that crate opened up and all these Lego pieces started floating and over the space of several months started landing on the coast. And they were mostly nautical themes. So these were sold in all the shops. It really made a difference there in Cornwall. But the question for people was, how did they escape that crate? How did they get out of the crate that was all boxed up within the crate and then locked up on the outside of the crate? Well, no one knows for sure, but the reality is that nothing can be hidden forever, can it? Somewhere along the line, that was cracked open and all the Lego pieces got out and did what Lego pieces do. Well, this is a great metaphor for us of our sin, isn't it? We think we have it hidden, all packaged up and all put on pallets and tied together and then put in a big crate and locked up. We have all that put out in, in the side where nobody else knows, and yet God always will reveal sin. It may not be today. You may think you're getting away with it, but you're not getting away with it in the eyes of a sovereign, omniscient, all-knowing God. He knows and he will reveal when he chooses to reveal. Sin will not stay hidden. And it will be also judged. There will come a day where you will be judged for your sin. Now hear me, John chapter 3 says that everyone outside of Christ is currently under judgment. Not a future judgment, although that exists, currently under judgment. So there are times that God reveals people's sin and they have consequences for it, but it's not the judgment. It's not the final judgment. If it was the final judgment, what would happen to them? They would die because their sin offends a holy God. But the way God works is his long-suffering is meant to lead us to repentance. So when he does that, he's giving time for people to repent, to turn away from their sin. So all sin will be revealed. It's never hidden forever. All of us sin. Christ is coming again. So today, what must we do? We must repent of our sin. Now that, that is the call of the gospel. Repent of your sin, which means turn around and go the opposite direction. It doesn't just mean that, oh, okay, I got caught, I'm going to stop today, but I'm not, really, I'm not really of the mind to get rid of that altogether. Repenting of sin, true repentance bears fruit. And if that sin is going to be, un if that repentance is going to be unto salvation, it will bear the fruit of being saved. And then guess what happens? We keep repenting as believers. As believers, we keep repenting of our sin because that sin has been paid for on the cross. Because we are now the people who can turn to Christ and, ask, and say, Lord, I turn away from my sin and know it's already forgiven. The gospel accomplishes that, but sin will still be outed. Now for a believer, God reveals sin in a believer so he can discipline us, Right? That's what Hebrews tells us, so that he can discipline us. And if we aren't being disciplined for our sin, it may mean that we are not his child. It may mean that we are not even his. So this is the life of a believer, as well as the call to all non-believers. And this is what Isaiah's message to us is. If you remember, turn to Isaiah 58. Just turn to, we're in Isaiah 59, but I want you to turn to Isaiah 58. And I want you to just let your eyes gaze down that chapter. And remember what we talked about last week. We talked, because Isaiah brings it in chapter 58, about false religion. About people doing religious acts without having a heart for God. They're just doing it for their own reasons. They're doing it and they complain against God. We've fasted, but you've not heard us. And what does God say? 
That kind of religious practice will never have your voice heard on high because it's not from a redeemed, changed heart. And so in Isaiah 58, we're taught about what is a, a false fast. And remember, we said that's, that's all forms of outward religious practice. But it also shows us what God says is a true fast. Remember, if you do this, then, then. If you do this, then, then, then. If you do this, then, then. That's the way the chapter is structured. So God is gracious to say, if you want your voice heard on high, then you should fast from sin. You should fast from doing evil. You should be about what I'm about, righteousness and justice. And that's the call and the promise that when you do, you have covenant blessings, gospel blessings. So that is essential for us to understand chapter 59 because chapter 59 and 58 are connected. Chapter 58 tells them you're worshiping in the wrong way. You need to worship in the right way. Chapter 59 reminds us that even though their, their fasting is not heard, their prayers are not being heard, God is still ready to save, but he saves those who repent from the sin. And that's what he's going to reveal to us. So today what's on the forefront of our mind is this, sin and repentance. If you have not come to Christ, if this morning you were here and you have never heard the gospel or you've heard the gospel 5,000 times but you've never repented of your sin, I mean truly repented, where God has overwhelmed you with, your, with grace, you've turned from your sin, put your faith and trust in Christ, and now the Spirit is guiding you. You're walking by the Spirit instead of the flesh. If you've never done that, then today could be the day of your salvation. Today is the day that God will... Out your sin and your Lego blocks come, come floating up to the shore and you have a choice. Are you going to flaunt the grace of God and go ahead and live the way you want or are you going to repent of your sin and turn to Christ? But if we're here and we're professing Christ, we have the same choice, don't we? I mean, we can rest in the cross so much that we never fight sin. Oh, it'll all wash out in the end. Christ died for all my sin. So, and he doesn't ever lose me. All the Father gives him, he will not lose any. Well, I'm here to tell you that if you're not constantly repenting of your sin, you don't know whether the Father has given you to the Son yet or not. Because constant repentance is what a broken, contrite heart looks like. And it's repentance with hope. And I'm not talking about the hope that says, I sure hope there's not a lot of ice that comes out tomorrow morning. And then you have to sit and wait. I'm talking about biblical hope. That there is a promise that God has acted. And if he has acted on your behalf, the fruit of that salvation coming out of you is a broken and contrite spirit before God who repents of sin and lets God exalt us at the proper time and then gets up and lives for him again because our sins are forgiven. That's Isaiah's message to us today. So there's not a person within the sound of my voice that doesn't need to listen to Isaiah. Stand, if you will. Chapter 59. Behold, Yahweh's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear, but... Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs. They weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies, and from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are their works are works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked, and no one treads on them. Who treads on them knows peace. Therefore, Justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We, we hope for light, and behold darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. 
We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. Transgressing and denying Yahweh and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words, Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares and unrighteousness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Yahweh saw it and it displeased him that there was not justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then... His own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation as his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of Yahweh from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of Yahweh drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion. To those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares Yahweh. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says Yahweh. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put into your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of all the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says Yahweh, from this time forth and forevermore. The grass withers and the flower falls. You may be seated. Well, I hope you saw... As we read this, if you haven't spent time in it this week, which I hope you have, but if you haven't, I hope you saw the change in the pronouns in this. Remember that when we read through any text of Scripture, we want to we make observations about that text. And one of the first things that we should notice is the change in the pronouns of who's speaking, who's being spoken about, and what that tells us about what the message is. So in these verses, we observe two responses to the reality of sin. Two responses to the reality of sin. The first response, the reality of sin requires you to respond. The reality of sin requires you to respond. The first thing, you need to recognize that God can save, but sin separates you from God. Look at verse 1. Behold, again, that marker, we've made a transition, something we should listen to, something we should perk our eyes up to and get rid of all the distractions so we hear what's coming. The, Yahweh's hand is not shortened. Remember the hand. Anytime we're talking about the hand or the arm, we're probably talking about the power of God. So his power is not shortened that it cannot save. Translation, God can save. His power is great enough to save those who he chooses to save. But the second part of this same um, couplet, and remember, all through Isaiah we've been looking at poetry not every passage, but most passages are poetry, so we have this parallelism that guides us. And parallelism will sometimes give us a, a, one statement and then a contrary statement next, and you'll see that hopefully indented in your scriptures. Sometimes it's a restatement of the same, and sometimes it's an intensifying, and that's the most way that we see the parallelism in the scriptures, is an intensifying the second and third statements intensifying the first. So as we go through this, we'll see sometimes we're talking about the same concept or the same promise or the same um, ideology, but we're seeing it from different standpoints and we're giving intensified versions and sometimes uh, um, versions that are exactly the same to bring home the focus of what's being said. 
So the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. Now I just pointed out to you in chapter 58 what happens. The people complain that the way they're worshiping, that God doesn't, God doesn't notice them. And God says, your voice will not make it on high with worship practices like that. Now, it's not just because they, they have a jot and tittle wrong. It's not because they, they read this version of the Bible instead of that version of the Bible or saying contemporary instead of hymns. That, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a heart that has been um, overcome by God, that has been constrained toward righteousness. And the reason their worship and Isaiah expanded it very quickly to their entire life, didn't he? It lacked justice, it lacked righteousness, and it lacked truth. And therefore, God didn't hear them. Now, does that mean that God just plugged his ears or that he somehow doesn't hear, he, he doesn't even know those pleas existed? No, it doesn't mean that. It means God, fellowship with your God is broken when you embrace sin without repentance. And that's what he's saying here. He, God, is not powerless that he cannot save. He, he's, he doesn't have a dull ear. His ears are not, are not covered over that he cannot hear. But there's a reason that your prayers in chapter 58 are not making and in any prayer. All your worship practices, verse 2, but your iniquities, I want you to mark that word, that appears five or six times. It drives our text and we're also going to see sin and transgression in our text. And sometimes they're lumped together so that we see the totality of sin. Both the, the, the rebellion, which is transgression, and the sin itself, which is the act of sin, and then the pollution of that sin. So we, we're seeing all of this here. So iniquity is in the focus here. That's why I say the beginning at the beginning that our focus today is on sin and how you respond to God over your own sin. But your iniquities, verse 2, have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. So here we have the iniquities, the guilt that have made separation between them and God of any explanation of what that is. That your sins have been hidden, have hidden his face from you. Now that is the sign of relationship, isn't it? Face to face. That's what it means, face-to-face -face with God. That's where we're heading in the new heavens and new earth, amen? Worship face-to-face -face with Christ and God with no sin involved and, and no sun or moon needed, no temple needed. We're headed for that face-to-face -face worship, but now we just taste of it. But if you're in, entertaining your sin instead of God, then you don't sense his presence. There is no face-to-face. -face. There is no intimacy that grows. And that's what Isaiah is saying. This... This sets out his whole proposition. In fact, I would say this sets out the whole proposition of Isaiah. There is judgment and there is hope. Remember? All the way through the first 39 chapters, we reminded ourselves over and over. There's judgment and there's hope. There's hope for those who turn to Christ. There's hope for those who respond to the light that has dawned on them. There is hope for those who are like Isaiah and say, to the testimony, I am going to trust in God, even though his face, he says this in chapter 8, even though his face is turned away from me, from his people, I will trust in him. Because he knows that's temporary for those who have placed their faith and trust in him. So this is the picture throughout the Psalms. We see in the Psalms many places where there are pleas for God to stop turning his face away, for God not to turn his face away, or the question, when will you stop turning your face away? So this is that common knowledge that when they're um, embracing sin, that they lose the sense of God's presence. And it's also set in promises that God will not turn his, way, his face away from those who are repentant and stand before him penitent. So he is strong enough and he knows everything and he has a desire to save. But right now, your sin, Isaiah says, has separated you because it's turned his face away from you. So he's going to provide the reason and the solution coming up. So the first thing we must do with regard to our sin, remember the reality of sin requires you to respond first to recognize there is salvation in the Lord and that your sin will separate you from him and from his salvation. Secondly, recognize that you are a sinner. Look at verse 3. For, that's how we're connected here, right? Your sin, your iniquities have made a separation, and now he's going to demonstrate this. For, your hands are defiled with blood, 
your fingers with iniquity. Now look at what that says to us. That, that, what that says to us is that you are actively using your Legos well with your hands, right? You are actively involved in sin. You, your hands are defiled with blood. Remember, that was the accusation in chapter 1, verse 15. Remember, in the introduction for Isaiah, he's taking them to task because their sin is marked out by this phrase, your hands are defiled with blood. You are constantly seeking out death and evil and destruction. And he even makes it even more clear, your fingers with iniquity. So the blood is representative of the, the, the lack of justice and vengeful. The iniquity is the sin in your fingers, your hands. You're, you're working with it. You're doing it. You're, everything that you're doing is, is surrounded in that. But also look at the second half of the verse. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. So it's not only your actions and what you're doing. It's your words. And I, your words are flowing from your heart. Right? Isn't that what, what, what we're told in the Gospels? Your word or, words are flowing for your, from your heart. So this is a demonstration that the, God's people in Isaiah's day, God's people returning from um, Babylon, being set free from captivity, it marks them then, and it can mark us now. It can mark the church now. That we are so consumed with doing our own will that we can be marked out like this and repentance is required of us. But we can also have those among us who are wolves among us, among the church. And this is their modus operandi. And it works out because we are people who implement what Luke has been teaching us for months now and will teach us for a few more months that scripture is sufficient to out that. And those who are believers respond to the word of God. Why would we go anywhere else but the word of God? We go there because God reveals sin. And it's our job to see when he reveals it and deal with it according to the scriptures. So he's starting this, this evidence of their sin. Look at verse 4. No one enters suit justly. Now literally, this is cause in righteousness. No one goes to law honestly, literally judges in truth. Now, it could be, like the ESV renders it, talking about the law court, that no one enters into the suit with justice in mind. It's always just their own, um, their self-desires. And no one goes to the courts, to the law, honestly. They're always doing it, manipulating. But if we let the word stand, call in righteousness, judges in truth, turn back to chapter 58. Remember, 58 and 59 are tied. Look at chapter 58, verse 2. God in verse 1 calls Isaiah or someone, probably Isaiah, to stand and to declare the, the sin, the transgressions of people in the midst of a worship service, it sounds like. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, that's only outward, as if they were a nation that what? Did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgment. They delight to draw near to me externally. Why have we fasted and you see not? Because, or why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in that day of your fast, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. So this could definitely manifest itself in court as the ESV is limiting it, but I wonder if it's connected right to Isaiah 58 that's telling us that, the, that righteousness and justice, the right judgment is far from them, which we see later in our text. Either way, we're talking sinfulness. We're talking the thing that marked them out in chapter 58. Instead of seeking God on the days of worship and on the Sabbath, they sought their own desires. And that's what's being conveyed here in verse 4. It continues, they rely, verse 4, on empty pleas. We're back in chapter 59. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief, and they give birth to iniquity. Now, that phrase is, is found in several places in the Psalms and in Job, give birth to iniquity. You see this picture, this vivid picture that Isaiah is point, painting. Everything the people are doing are based out of their own desires and not God's. And everything that they do give birth to more sin. Now, in this whole section, we're, we're talking very little about specific sins and a lot about the nature of sin and the nature of what sin looks like. So keep that in mind. Look at verse 5. This wonderful illustration that is given in verse 5 and 6. They hatch adder's eggs. They weave the spider's web. 
Now look at how this flows out. Those are the two statements in 5A and B. Then 5C and D talk about the adder's day eggs. 6A and B talk about the spider's webs. And 6C and D give the description of what that metaphor is supposed to tell us. You follow what's happening? This is very tightly wound in a liter literary fashion, and it's very descriptive. They hatch adder's eggs. Jump to verse 6, or um, the end of verse 5. He who eats their eggs dies, and from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Now, this is their sin. Now, what should happen with eggs? Eggs carry life by their very nature, don't they? Eggs carry life by their very nature. Eggs are meant to sustain you. Eggs are meant to bring life. And yet they, the eggs that they, ha that, that they have, the, they hatch adder's eggs. This is their sin. Don't confuse the metaphor with the, with the reality, what it's talking about. Their sin, they, he who eats their eggs dies instead of gives life. Sin brings death, does it not? Sin brings death. And also, he says, and from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. So you may think, well, I'm going to just crush that thing. Do it out of your own power. Still pursue your own desire. What happens? Another one pops up in its place. Now, that's what happens with sin. Can you see the vividness here? That we try to deal with our sin out of our own flesh, and guess what happens? There's more sin because it's in here. And it comes out again. And if we don't fight it with the gospel, this is the kind of thing that happens. It doesn't bring life. It brings death. This is what James talks about in James chapter 1. Let's just turn there. Keep your finger in Isaiah. James chapter 1. We're going to go to a familiar passage, but I want you to see the text, not just me to say it to you. James chapter 1. We're going to just jump into the middle of this section in verse 14. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Remember how prominent desire is in Isaiah 58 and 59. It's our desires that are being pursued, and that gets in the way from us seeing God in his desires. Verse 15, then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now, that's the way sin works. Now, it brings forth death eternally without repentance. If you're living in this life pursuing your own sin, and I don't care if you just feel guilty about your sin sometimes, or even if you're crushed by conviction and you say, well, I can't do that anymore because when I do that, this is the consequence. If it's not driven because God has brought you to your knees and realizing you're offending a holy God, then that sin just is going to produce another sin because you are vulnerable because Satan is more powerful than you on your own. So this is a great picture that Isaiah gives us. Back to Isaiah 59. The second illustration here that's woven together, they weave the spider's web. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. So here's another picture. Shifts uh, to a drastically different picture. And you can picture the spider's web. Picture that spider's web in the, in the morning sun glistening and you can see all of the beauty in its construction. And it's strong. That spider can go all over it. It catches, it catches the bugs that crawl or fly into it. But what happens if you just grab one of those main strands and pull it? The whole thing crumbles in. And when it crumbles in, what's it do? It sticks to everything, right? It just engulfs you in Now remember, the web is what? Sin. And when you're doing, messing around with that sin, it doesn't take long for God just to pluck one of those strings so it comes and engulfs you. And it, it, it clothes you, but it clothes you by sticking to you. And if you ever walk through a spider's web in the middle of a dark night, you know what I'm talking about, right? It just wraps you up and you're just trying to get a... It, it just reminds us of that. Now look what the text says about it. The webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. In other words, what they are trying to produce when it's based in sin is not going to do anything for them. It won't cover them at all. Now look at the description at the end of verse 6, this is where these two illustrations are tied together. Their works are works of iniquity. So they're, they're the adder's eggs, the webs, they're works of iniquity. And deeds of violence are in their hands. 
So it even intensifies. Their works are works of iniquity. Deeds of violence are in their hands. That brings us right back to where we started in verse 3. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. So it's this strong picture of what sin does. And remember, God is speaking through Isaiah to reveal the sin to the people. He's expecting them to understand and see their own sin. But he continues, look at verse 7. Their feet run to evil. Right? They are swift to, shred, to shed innocent blood. So they are, this is what they're about. This is what drives them. They're pursuing this. It's not passive. It's aggressive works. Their feet run to evil and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are their highways. The way of peace they do not know and there is no justice in their paths and they, they have made them, their roads crooked and no one who treads on them knows peace. Now you see, peace bookends that little section. And what do we know about wicked people? They do not have peace. There is no peace for the wicked. Twice. We've read that in Isaiah already. See how he's spinning all of his theology together for us? No pun intended on the web. You see how he's, he's just tying this all up for us. But I want you to also see Isaiah uses this idea of a roadway much. And look at all the terms. He takes all of them that he's used in the book and he puts them all in this section. Look at what he says at the last line of verse 7. Desolation and destruction. Now, just remember, Isaiah theology tells us that that is the result of sin, right? Communities that were once thriving die. Gardens that were once green are now dead. Um, this is the result of sin. So that all of his theology is backed up in those words. Desolation and destruction are their highways. The ways, there's the second term, of peace they do not know, because there is no peace for the wicked. There is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked, and no one who treads on them knows peace. One commentator says this about the way he's put these together. Throughout the book of Isaiah, words for way and highway have been prominent. Here, in these verses, all the words are collected in one place. The collection is for the purpose of showing how utterly futile, futile all human ways are apart from the Lord's intervention. Now he sums this up, and for each one of these, he gives four or five references. I'm not going to give those. It'll lose his, his illustration. His highways, his highways are peace and redemption, but the human highways are destruction and confusion. Half a dozen verses for each of those out of Isaiah. In his way, there is guidance and confidence, but in our ways, there is discord and strife. In his way is restoration and completeness, shalom, peace. In our ways, there is no shalom, shalom, only greater and greater disintegration. All of that, Isaiah is taking all of his theology and he is pointing it right at our hearts and lives. God's way produces salvation. Our way produces judgment. That's what he's bringing to us. Look at verse, the end of verse 8. No one who treads on them knows peace. That's the summary statement. Peace is our desire and peace will always flee. So the reality of sin requires us to respond, to recognize that God can save, but sin separates you from God, to recognize that you are a sinner, but also to respond to your sin with mourning. Now I want you to see again in verse 9, we're going to look at verses 9 through the first half of 15, verse 9 changes, changes to the, the people, or Isaiah speaking on behalf of his people, in first person plural language, we. He includes himself in this. These are the ones who are responding to God in repentance. These are the, the, the ones, the remnant that God has raised up, that he's sending back. Now, not all of the physical remnant going back to the land are all of the spiritual remnant, but there are spiritual remnant people in that. So this is what is being brought. The people who are going to repent, this is what repentance looks like. Look at verse 9. These confessions. And remember, as we go, I'm not going to spend as much time here, but as we go, remember justice, righteousness, and truth. Those have been prominent themes separating God from sinful man, haven't they? All through Isaiah. 
Verse 9, therefore justice is far from us, us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We, we hope for light, behold, darkness. We hope for brightness, but we walk in gloom. So there's a desire. You hear the desire? We do have a desire to escape from darkness, but what we're doing is keeping us in that darkness. And all of Isaiah's teaching from the past comes in. Remember chapter 8? There, uh, there's a people that are walking in darkness, and upon them uh, dawns a great light, and it shines on them and through them. And we also saw this just the last chapter or the chapter before, where the light dawns and shines through God's people. These are the people who are heading toward that, but their sin has stopped at the light and they're living in darkness. Verse 10, we grope for the wall like the blind because they can't see, they're in darkness. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. So the sun is shining, but we stumble as if it's dark. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. Among the living, we're living like dead. There's no life in us. Why? Because their sin is producing death. Their sin, and when they try to deal with it in their own flesh, sin comes up again like a viper out of its egg. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. There's complaining in the land. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. Now, they, gotta, they have to do more than hope, right? They have to act. God commands them, if they're his people, to act in justice, to pursue what is right, to pursue what God says is right. So they're not doing that, so there is no justice, and they're mourning over it, but they have to come to the realization that it's their job to show the justice of the Lord through their actions. For our transgression, verse 12, are multiplied before you. Here's where we get down to the nitty-gritty. There's, there's, no, there's no wimpiness here. Our transgressions are multiplied before you. Our sins testify against us. Remember that the, the transgression is the rebellion. The rebellions that lead to this sin are multiplied. The sins are the examples that we just saw that God brought out in verses three, 3 through 8. And our transgressions are with us. And we know our iniquities. You've revealed them to us, we see them, and we know them, and we bring them back to you. And then they get even more forceful. Verse 13, transgressing and denying Yahweh, and turning back from following our God. Speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice, here we have summary statements, justice is turned back. Righteousness stands far away. For, why is that? Why does justice turn back and righteousness stand far away? For truth has stumbled in the public squares. In other words, it's not existence. And upright, uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who debart, departs from evil makes himself prey. You feel the weight of that last statement? For the righteous, they are prey for the unrighteous. If you stand up for truth, which means you're departing from evil, then you are opening yourself up as prey because untruthfulness and unrighteousness and injustice is everywhere because the people are unrighteous. The people are pushing away truth and grabbing onto lies. Now, Isaiah could have written that for January 21st, 2024. Couldn't he? I mean, this describes our country to a T. This is, this is a call to national repentance. Now, now let, me, let me keep our theology straight here because I don't want to mince any words here. Nations are not going to come to Christ because they are part of a nation. Individuals come to Christ because they repent of their sins and trust on Christ. In the Old Covenant, God chose a people, a nation, Israel for himself, and part of those people were lost with uncircumcised hearts. Part of them were saved with circumcised hearts. That's evidence in how God dealt with them. It's evident all through Isaiah that he is about justice and salvation. He's about judgment and salvation. So in the Old Covenant, we are dealing with a people. So when Isaiah speaks to the people of God, he's speaking to a nation. But there is still truth that the individuals of a nation who pursue ungodliness make a nation ungodly. It's not the nation itself, it's the people within the nation. And today we live in a world where 
Godliness is, it's a sin in itself. It's a reason to come against someone if they have a, a godly thing. Science has run amok, has it not? Science has run amok because truth is gone. This is what happens. That's why men can have babies, according to the zeitgeist of the day. Because science is without truth. So that's why science is run. Is science evil? No. But science run amok without truth produces unrighteousness. Medicine without justice or righteousness or truth leads to killing babies in the womb with our technology. Is technology bad? No. But the sinfulness of men and women who kill babies in the womb and in the name of their own self-fulfillment and in the name of science, that's not, that's not really a child yet, kill babies in the womb. Now, please don't hear me snarling at any person. I'm snarling at the thought process that all the people have produced because they flee from righteousness and they flee from truth. Of all days, this is the day. Because this, this over the, over, at the end of the week and now here on Sunday for many places are these marches where people try to draw attention to this. But it's, the fight has gotten even harder, has it not? We might have Roe v. Wade set aside, but now there are states that are enshrining this right in their constitution, enshrining the right for a man to call himself a woman or a woman to call himself a man in their laws. Truth has left the public square. This is an indictment on nations everywhere. Government without truth pursues justice that is neither just nor righteous. Technology without justice, righteousness, and truth produces social media, por social media sins, pornography, artificial intelligence that doubles down and multiplies injustice, unrighteousness, and lies. It's not the technology, it's the people who create and teach the technology. Churches who abandon truth bring all of this into, into their own church and baptize practices that grieve their God that they claim to serve. Luke demonstrated that in the counseling realm and the discipleship realm this morning. This is the church imbibing the world instead of standing on truth, righteousness, and justice. Now, none of those, science, technology, government, none of that is sinful in itself. It is the individuals that need to be called in to repentance. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. What would happen? What would happen if God granted repentance to President Joe Biden? What would happen if God granted true, salvific repentance to former president, maybe future president, Donald Trump? Not doing good things because it's pragmatic and populistic, but doing good things because they worship God. What would happen if our Congress had more righteous believers in it than non-believers? What would happen in our nation? It's not because Congress or the presidency is bad or good. It's because the people who hold the office are now worshiping God instead of Satan, now worshiping God instead of themselves. What would happen at our state level? With all the blue states, now I'm not being political here, it's a reality, the blue states who are enshrining abortion into their constitution, what would happen if all those government officials repented and believed on Christ? What would happen then? What would happen if in the red states, those who are doing good things for selfish reasons actually were doing them to glorify God? What would happen at the local level? What would happen in your family if you lived like you were saved instead of like you were lost, if that is where you, are, where you live right now? This is the call, is it not? For all the world to repent of their sin and believe on Christ. And then if God changes culture out of that, so be it. And it will change. The gospel is powerful because God's arm, his hand, is not shortened. This is his desire. Now, we could get into all kinds of different eschatological, eschatological discussions here. None of that matters to me. Is the gospel powerful? Yes. Does God intend to save sinners? Yes. So our job is to, first of all, repent of our sin, Second, for, under salvation. Second of all, to continue to repent of our sin, to the glory of God, to bring him glory because truth and justice and righteousness is driving us because they're of the character of God. Remember, this, these aren't just some uh, free-floating concepts, right? God is truth. 
God is just. God is righteous. So all of his character is what's driving his commands for us to act that way. What would it be like if our nation and all of the structures of power decided they were going to live according to biblical principles? Just think about that. And we think, well, that'll never happen. Why not? Why would God not choose to glorify himself in that way? Through a church that is shouting on the mountaintops, that are watchmen on the wall, shouting truth and righteousness and justice into our world, establishing um, organizations that are founded on truth and justice and righteousness. And what would God choose to do in that? I'm not binding him in that. I'm not one of the people who think that God has promised that. We have people in our congregation who do, and hallelujah, they think that God has promised that before Jesus comes back. If they're right, hallelujah. If they're not, maybe it'll be cyclical and we'll see a little bit of it here and we'll see a little bit of it there when God chooses to do it, but it's all because God is the one who saves and people repent, not nations, but people repent of their sin and trust in Christ. And there's going to come a day where that will be true. Amen? In the new Jerusalem, we will experience that perfectly. Will we ever experience that perfectly now? No. But it's our role to challenge and to stand, first of all, individually, because that will change the direction of a nation. Well, secondly, the second response, the reality of sin requires not only us to respond, but God to respond. Look at the second half of verse 15. Yahweh saw it, and it displeased him. So he saw what was around the people, the sin that was there, that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man, and we've seen that phrase before where God looks and he sees no man that stands up for righteousness, and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Now mark our grammar here. What was the role of the Messiah in chapter 53 in verse 12? He was the intercession right? The suffering servant. Chapter 53, verse 12, it was the suffering servant who intercedes. So we have Isaiah 53, 52, 13, all through 53, permeating our text as we have um, all through this whole entire last section of the book. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. Now who is his own arm here? It's God's strength and power represented in the suffering servant who comes to live and to die in the place of his people so that his people could have life, that, the, that his offspring would have life. That's what we learned in Isaiah 53. So God acts in this way. We've moved into that, that presentation of what God does because of sin when there's repentance or lack thereof. Verse 17. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. So we have this, this, this garment dress language again, and we see the, the divine warrior being, raising himself up to do the work of salvation and judgment. This is the same kind of Paul, language Paul uses, right, in Ephesians chapter 6. It's what we do, because our battle is not with flesh and blood, it's with the principles and the powers. It's with the spiritual warfare that is going on. So we put on the same armor in order to be bowing our knee in prayer that our mighty warrior works. That's what Isaiah 6 tells us. This is what God is picturing himself as, raising himself up as that warrior. Wrapped him, he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Now remember, these words are important. Back in chapter 9, that famous verse that we read most Christmas seasons, that back in chapter 9 of Isaiah ends with that promise of the zeal of the Lord. Verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, 
The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will do this. So it's his zeal that he is calling up and dressing himself in as well to accomplish this. Now interspersed here in this rising up of this, this mighty warrior, the conquering warrior, is judgment for the unrepentant and redemption for the repentant. All interspersed here. Look at what he says. He puts on, in verse 17, he puts on righteousness as a breastplate plate, and a helmet of salvation for his head. So there is the side that he's going to save, and he's already set out what that is required. It's required for repentance, repentance to receive that salvation. He's going to tell us that again. If we're going to be attached to the Redeemer, to the one who is the intercession, repentance is required. But at the same time, he's raising himself up to judge those who are his enemies. And we've seen this over and over in Isaiah. He's summing up all his thought in this chapter and in several other chapters here at the end. Look at verse 18. According to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries. You see why the focus was there on deeds? The, the lips, what we say, what we do, the iniquity with our hands and our fingers. It's according to our deeds, so will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment. Now remember, that's the islands. That's the furthest off place. We've already seen that God intends to save people from those same places, right? From the coastlands. Verse 19, So they shall fear the name of Yahweh from the west and his glory from the east, from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing, like a rushing stream with which the wind of Yahweh drives. So this is that picture of, of judgment that is brought forward, that God is raising himself up to judge who refuse those to repent before him. Look at verse 20. And a redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who what? Turn from transgression, declares Yahweh. Repent. Turn. Turn the other direction. That's the key. Those who are repenting will receive redemption because the Redeemer, his right arm, his strong right arm, the Messiah himself, will come and he will redeem his people. Now, Paul uses this verse in Romans chapter 11 as the sole verse to say that all Israel will be saved. Now, I'm not going to go into a theological treatise on that, but that doesn't necessarily mean that every Israelite on the face of the earth is going to be saved. What did we just learn has to happen if you're going to be saved? You have to repent. So any Israelite, any Gentile, any Jew or Gentile, anyone from any nation who repents will be saved. And Paul justifies this by quoting this verse. He also quotes verses earlier um, in verse 7 and the beginning of 8 in Romans chapter 3. He quotes as the final um, scriptural evidence, five different Psalms in this passage from Isaiah, he quotes to, to prove that all Jews and Gentiles are guilty before him. That's what he proves in chapter 1, 2, and 3. So if everyone is guilty before him, and they are, and the only way to be saved is to repent, and it is, then only Jews who repent will be saved. And it will be all Israel who God intends to save will be saved. He is not slack in that. The same as it is with all Gentiles. Now there's the promise of salvation, but look at verse 21. It goes to a, from poetry to narrative, and it just ices this down for us of the reasons that God works this way. And I want you to notice the singular yous, masculine singular yous that are used here. Y-O-U, masculine singular. As for me, this is Yahweh speaking, this is my covenant with them. Now God is always working according to his covenant, right? He is always working according to his covenant because he is a kessid God. He is a covenant faithful God. And this is his covenant with them, says Yahweh. And now he itemizes it. My spirit, should be capital S, my spirit that is upon you, masculine singular. So who are we talking about? Who is his spirit resting upon? The suffering servant. The redeemer. The one who comes to stand as intercessor for his people. The one who gives himself in their place so that all of his offspring, chapter 53, he won't lose any of those. Chapter 53 tells us that his offspring are who he intercedes for. Spiritual offspring. So this covenant, his spirit is going to rest on the Messiah, 
my spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth, again the Messiah, shall not depart out of your mouth, because Jesus is a, is, a God, is a God of truth and justice and righteousness, and he comes to redeem his people, right? Or out of the mouth of your offspring, or out of the mouth of your children's offspring. Now, there are those who would come and say that that means that if you're a believer, your children will be saved as well. And that's not what this passage is saying. This is talking about the offspring of, of the Messiah, that chapter 53 tells us are all those who put our faith, their faith and trust in him. This is the offspring that's even talked about in the early chapters of Genesis when the battle of the seeds is mentioned to us. Remember that? That there is the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent and that the, the, the battle will be won by the seed of the woman who crushes the, the serpent's head. That battle starts in Genesis 3. It is won on the cross and it is applied until Christ comes back again. So the offspring being talked about here are all believers. Everyone who puts their faith and trust in Christ in this generation and all the generations that follow says Yahweh from this time forth and forevermore. Now that is a promise that we can, as we say, hang our hat on, is it not? That is a promise that if we are those who have repented from sin, this is the reason we pursue the character of God in our own life and in the world around us. Because this is what we do. We are his offspring. We are united with him. He died in our place so that we would have life. He is the one who provides, as we already read in Titus chapter 2, that we can turn away from and, and, and put behind us all on lawlessness because we are now in Christ. Now let me tell you, if you are not in Christ this morning, you have built a wall that has God's face turned away from you. Now walls have been very important throughout history separate people. It doesn't matter whether it was Hadrian's Wall in the second century trying to mark off the land we now call Scotland for the Roman Empire. It doesn't matter whether it was the Berlin Wall that was toppled. It doesn't matter whether it was a wall built in Italy around a, uh, one of the neighborhoods because it was infested with drugs. So they built a wall one night so the people would be stuck in there and, and they could keep the evil inside. Walls have driven co countries apart and brought them together. But one thing that the walls also do is it brings sickness. There were studies done. The Berlin Wall, those who were on the east side and those who were on the free side, there were studies done of the depression and suicide and, and um, just a, a low spiritual mindset in the east because they were separated from the west and any form of truth, righteousness, and justness, any, any form of historical Christian or even Jewish faith they were separated from that. Once the wall went down, guess what happened to all those statistics? Once the wall was torn down and truth and light and justice seeped in, everything changed. There was joy. There was happiness. Now that wall that you built is your sin. But there is one who can tear that down. Christ is the one who comes, according to Ephesians, who tears down the dividing wall. Now in Ephesians, it's the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile, but it's the same purpose between Jew and Gentile who were sinners who are now united in Christ in the church. So the call today is to repent, to turn away from your sin, tear down the wall because Jesus has torn it down already because he's here to save you if you repent of your sin and turn to him. Do that today. Make the angels throw a party and make us rejoice as a body and bring glory to God by repenting and believing today. And those of us who are saved, this text should fire us up, should it not? Isaiah kind of was ported forward into the United States in our day to give us encouragement to stand on truth and righteousness and justice in our own life, which means we can't just hide our sin and be outwardly one way and inwardly cherishing sin but to deal with that with the Lord and go and do likewise in the world because that's up to God how he works with the gospel being proclaimed. But it is a mighty promise that we stand on. And we do all of this because we have nothing to stand on but Christ. It's him and his finished work and his righteousness. And it's his work. And he's all we have. And the reality is he's all we need. Amen? It doesn't matter what we face in this world. We have Christ, the promised Redeemer who died for us. Father, we are grateful for your mercy. We are grateful for what you've done in your Son.
We are grateful, Lord, that we were once lost in our sin, lost in our transgressions, completely overcome with our own sinfulness, completely overcome with our own desires, and even as it it led us into destruction, we just kept taking our Legos and building it on top of each other, separating us more from you. But you have seen fit that while we were yet sinners, to shed your light upon the world, to have Christ die for us, and that all those who repent of their sin and trust in you would have eternal life. And so before we're saved, all we have is Christ. After we're saved, all we have is Christ. And though we were once lost, we've now been found. And now we walk in the light that is dawned on us and shines through us. And we ask you, Father, to make us faithful and to use um, our professions of the gospel, our lives that are pursuing righteousness to your glory, to do what you see fit. And we pray, Father, that that would be a revival in our land because righteousness would return to the public square and have a place. Truth would return to the public square and have a place. And your glory would be at the center of everything that is done. And if not now, we're thankful for the promise of eternal life with you in just that city. So we are grateful. In Jesus' name, amen.